I'm Sinead O'Carroll, editor of The Journal. Before we start this episode, I wanted to ask you something. When the survivors of mother and baby homes felt dismissed by the state's formal investigation, your presenter, Orla Ryan, was really motivated to produce even more reliable, meaningful, independent journalism about what happened to the women and children in these institutions. Our aim has been to provide them with a space to tell you about their own lives, in their own words, using their own voices. So, over the past year, we've been making Redacted Lives, which, as you've been hearing, does just that. It has been a big commitment from our newsroom, but one that we hope you are finding worthwhile and that you believe should be heard by as many people as possible. Now, we're asking listeners like you to support us. A donation will go a long way in helping us to keep doing work like this. Please go to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute and choose between a monthly or one-off contribution. Redacted Lives is a six-part documentary series by The Journal that tells the real story of mother and baby homes. From what happened within, to how the state continues to deny survivors access to information, proper redress and ownership of their true stories. The episodes explore the lives of the mothers and their children as they search for answers, in their own voices and their own words. We're following some of those families on their journeys of possible reconnections, as well as talking to relatives seeking justice for their loved ones who have died. We're also putting the state's botched attempt at righting these wrongs under the microscope, and we'll seek answers from the minister responsible about redress and proper burials for the 800 children in Tume. Episode 4 The Commission this episode contains sensitive topics such as suicide and addiction. It was a dream come true for me. Finally, somebody was going to be listening. Finally, somebody was going to be asking me questions that mattered. I'd waited 41 years for somebody to ask the right questions. Like, how did I get out of England? Who paid for my fly? Who gave permission to anybody to take me out of England? I want answers. After years of being ignored and decades of their stories being swept under the carpet. Many survivors like Terry Harrison felt as though the commission of investigation into mother and baby homes was a chance for Irish society to find out what truly happened in these institutions. That itself was a massive undertaking. The team was led by Justice Yvonne Murphy, who oversaw previous inquiries into clerical child abuse. She worked alongside Professor Mary Daly and Dr. William Duncan. The commission examined 14 mother and baby homes and four county homes, a sample of the overall number of institutions in Ireland, which operated between 1922 and 1998. It took years to wade through the tens of thousands of documents that were available and interview hundreds of people. Often even just trying to find the evidence took time, as religious orders and local authorities were sometimes unable to locate crucial records. The final report ran to almost 3,000 pages, and its findings were eagerly awaited by survivors, the government, and members of the public alike. But it fell short of offering the closure many so badly needed, and didn't come to the conclusions that many experts expected leading people to ask, how? How did this fall short of what was expected? The commissioners stand over their report, 
and after it was criticised, Yvonne Murphy said it speaks for itself and must be read in its entirety, adding that the independence of the commission cannot simply be abandoned because its findings are not acceptable to some at a political level. One element we'll examine in this episode is the manner in which evidence was gathered by the commission, something that only became fully clear after the final report was published. Katrina Crow, former head of special projects at the National Archives, recalls how the commission caused upset and anger even before the document was released. Survivors were supposed to get a glimpse of it before it appeared into the public domain, and that was botched. There was a leak to one of the Sunday newspapers giving details of its findings in advance of anyone seeing it. And then very rushed treatment of survivors in terms of how they were to deal with this. And it was overwhelming for very many of them in the sense that they, a lot of them had hoped that this would be a solution to their, their problems about uh, their, their past. They would get clear information about their identities. And none of that turned out to be the case. But the problems didn't stop there. On the day the report was finally published, Children's Minister Roderick O'Gorman and Taoiseach Michal Martin held an online meeting with a number of survivors and relatives. Many people were either unable to join this meeting or were unaware that it was happening in the first place. Author Caelan Hogan remembers helping one survivor access the meeting. I stood in the front garden of a woman who was sent to twice and then sent to a Magdalene laundry the day that the report was published and the day that a, a private sort of online meeting was held um, for survivors and their families affected. And she had no access to watch this online meeting that was meant to be for her and survivors like her. So she had to stand in her front garden in the cold during lockdown, watching a laptop that I'd set up on a wall so she could watch it and be told to read the report carefully in advance of the state apology that was going to come, I believe, the next day. And yet she didn't even, they didn't have the respect to even send her a physical copy of the report. Survivors who gave testimony to the commission were left reeling by the events of the week. Terry Harrison gave evidence to the commission shortly after it was set up in 2015. She spent weeks preparing what she would say, anticipating the commissioner's questions and getting her thoughts in order. Terry was nervous as she travelled from her home in Clondalkin into the commission's office on Bagot Street in Dublin City. But she was ready. She had waited so long to tell her story. But her testimony proved to be a prime example of how, in relation to many important issues, the commission couldn't actually conclude that something happened at all. Repeatedly, it found, quote, no evidence of common themes raised by the women and children who pass through the system, many of which you have already heard from the people involved themselves. You've heard Terry tell her story of being forced onto a plane from England to Ireland by a priest when she was pregnant. I was screaming, hysterical, begging, please, please stop him, stop him, somebody stop him. When he eventually got me in the back of that car, I started to become invisible. Yet the Commission's final report said it found, quote, no evidence that women were forced to enter mother and baby homes by the church or state authorities. 
Terry also said she fully intended to keep her son, but he was taken away from her. For the 10 o'clock feed, I would have been going up for that. He was gone. I lost the block, went ballistic. But again, the commission found, quote, very little evidence that children were forcibly taken from their mothers. Terry told us that she was denied medical attention during her difficult pregnancy and in childbirth, with the nuns instead telling her to ask God for help. I just begged her to get me, let me see a doctor. And that's when she asked me who did I think I was, if I was somebody special. So she told me to go to the grotto and pray. And yet, there was, quote, no evidence that the women who gave birth in mother and baby homes were denied pain relief or other medical interventions. Looking back in retrospect, they tore us apart in, in Bagger Street for nothing. They let women go down avenues that they wouldn't dare go near in order t- to be able to wake up in the morning. They don't want to kill themselves or drown themselves in a bottle of whiskey. And they let them do that. And I seen some of them that I scraped off the ground nearly. They went in as one person came out. And for what? To tell a sad story. This all begs the question, how did the commission come to findings that contradicted much of the testimony given by survivors like Terry? To explain that, we need to take a look at exactly how the inquiry gathered evidence. The Commission heard people's testimonies via two committees, the Investigation Committee and the Confidential Committee. Think of the Investigation Committee as being similar to a court hearing. Anyone choosing this route had to swear the evidence was true, and all claims were questioned in a rigorous manner. The Confidential Committee was more relaxed. Survivors were told it would offer them a chance to share their story in a, quote, sympathetic atmosphere by experienced people. It also offered guaranteed anonymity, a hugely appealing prospect for people sharing stories that, in many cases, they had kept largely secret for most of their lives. Terry is one of 64 people who gave evidence to the investigation committee whereas more than 500 people gave evidence via the Confidential Committee. But there's a reason for that disparity. Since the Commission's final report was published in January 2021, many survivors have come forward to say they thought the Confidential Committee, the one whose findings would carry less weight, was the only way to give evidence. When they applied to take part in the Commission, they said they were directed to this committee and did not know that another committee even existed. Some witnesses did know there were two different committees, but believed that their evidence would be given the same weight, regardless of which committee they spoke to. Just 19 people who applied directly to give evidence to the investigation committee were successful. And it's not clear how the other witnesses were chosen. This isn't an issue that only emerged after the report's publication. As far back as 2016, the Clan Project, a group that advocates on behalf of survivors, raised concerns about the fact most people were being automatically directed to the Confidential Committee. Dr. Mavo Rourke, a human rights lawyer and co-director of Clan, 
says that survivors should have been informed there were two different committees, and given the opportunity to choose which one they wanted to attend, potentially resulting in a report containing very different findings. We were really concerned that people were being funneled essentially into the confidential committee because it was very clear to us that the investigation committee was the one that had the power to make adverse findings against identifiable institutions or individuals. That much can be gleaned from the Commissions of Investigation Act 2004. So it was very important that every single person who wished to have their evidence challenged, because that is the nature of the investigation committee, would have the opportunity to go and give their evidence fully. So we found that absolutely problematic. This is such a serious subject matter. The Commission's findings were going to have enormous implications for justice and redress for people. And to not actually give the people concerned full information in order that they could give their full free and informed consent to participate was just appalling practice in my view. The Commission clearly disregarded a lot of the survivors' evidence. It found that they were not entirely credible. I think that much is clear from the notice it put at the outset of the confidential committee report saying that some of this testimony is contaminated, but not telling the reader whose, what testimony, and therefore undermining the credibility of the entire 550 testimonies that were given to that committee. And we can see very clearly that the confidential committee testimony, that is the vast majority of witness survivor testimony that was received, does not make its way into the main report, does not influence the main report's findings. Monica, who we heard from earlier in the series, was one of those who felt confused or misled by the nature of the different committees. She claimed she was told by one of the commission's employees that the investigation committee was only for survivors who were physically or sexually abused while in an institution. This alleged criteria is not mentioned anywhere in the Commission's terms of reference. So Monica, like hundreds of others, gave evidence via the Confidential Committee. We heard part of that interview in Episode 2. Monica is one of many witnesses who were deeply hurt to see that their experiences had been condensed into just a few lines of text, without much context and missing vital details. I visited her in Mallow to discuss the Commission's final report, and sat with her while she read the section that referred to her testimony. However, at the end of the decade, the next witness, who became pregnant in 1979 at the age of 22 years, following a one-night stand, encapsulated the position of women and girls within their families, even extended families with the phrase, in those days, you did what you were told. When her father found out about the pregnancy, he stopped talking to her, despite their previous closeness. While both parents then informed the birth father's parents who sent him abroad. The catalyst for the witness came with a visit to their home by a friend of her sister who had also become pregnant out of wedlock. 
The witness was not privy to the discussion, but shortly afterwards, my suitcase was packed and put waiting for me in the hallway. And I was told I was going for a trip to the country where the mother and baby home was, of course. When she had her baby and wanted to keep her, they sent the witness for psychiatric assessment as they could not comprehend why she would want to do that. And when she refused to relent, they threw her out. The story's end is even sadder because after three months of trying to organise some credible way to keep her daughter, she could not cope and reluctantly went ahead with adoption, telling the committee, you cannot live and love alone. How does it feel to see? Absolutely devastating. <laughs> 40 years, 42 years. And it's like, I'm just back in there again. And when I look back, if I had the strength back then that I have now, I'd still have her. I'd still have Nicola. And you know something? I'm sick to death. I've been shut up about the whole lot. Because that's what happened. They threw it all aside. They tried to shut us all up about it. Katrina Crow says survivors' testimony like Monica's was not treated with the respect it deserved. She says the fact that the audio recordings of their interviews were deleted, in many cases without the women's consent, highlights this fact. The Commission argued at the time that it was legally obliged to delete the audio files, noting many people had requested to remain anonymous. But, following national outrage, it found backup copies of the recordings. But a core issue remains. Were the survivors treated as inherently bad witnesses to begin with? This testimony is the, is the heart of this report. It's the people who were there, the only people who can really tell us what it was like to, to go through that experience. It should have had prime position in terms of the report. Of course, that there are going to be uh, issues around third parties and so on. But that can be overcome. You can edit sensitively in consultation with the survivors to give the the right sense of what was being said without compromising third parties. Uh, Of course, if you're going to do it, if it had been subject to the same rules as the Investor Committee, it would have taken a very long time. It needn't have taken a very long time. But even if it did, why was that not worth it is really the question. And this brings us to the nub of the issue, which is a degree of disrespect for the very people who are are giving unique testimony about what it was like to go through these experiences. And that, to me, is really shocking, that they were not regarded as as, uh, good witnesses. There were claims that that in the report itself, they claimed people's testimony was tainted by people talking to each other. What? Of course they talked to each other. But this presumption all the time, which persists, that survivors are in some way so damaged that they cannot give a coherent account of of their lives, that they're going to sort of subsume other people's memories willy-nilly when they're talking to them and and mess it up. 
And that's the problem, that these people were never treated with the respect they deserve. For Terry and Monica, the commission was the first time they gave evidence to an inquiry. It was all new to them. But for Mary Harney, it was her second time. She previously gave evidence to the Ryan Commission to inquire into child abuse, reliving the brutality she suffered in an industrial school. This experience was traumatic, so she opted to give evidence via the Confidential Committee this time around. I chose the Confidential Committee because of the adversarial experience I had with the Ryan Commission. I thought this would be... I went in believing that my testimony would be official. I mean, accepted as evidence. The fact that I was giving it informally was for my comfort, I thought. You know, sit in an easy chair. Here, have a hanky, have a biscuit, have a cup of tea. And that's what it was like, you know. The people who were there asked some questions, recorded my answers, took down notes. And when I came out of there, I was obviously the aftermath of these things is still painful, was again triggered all the PTSD nightmares and everything. However, I felt at that time that my testimony would be treated as evidence, only to find out when the report came out that it wasn't. And I was identifiable right there. I mean, I had emails from people saying, saw your bit. There wasn't a name, but they were identifiable because I've spoken out, I've been campaigning for years, I'm identifiable. Now, according to the rules of the commission, I should have been given information and an opportunity to examine that document and to make any changes or do say, look, I'm not sure about this, whatever, you know, you need to change that. I was not given that opportunity. Since the Commission's final report was published, many questions have been asked about how it operated and came to the conclusions it did. The people best placed to answer these questions are the three commissioners, but we've heard very little from them. During the making of this episode, attempts were made to contact the three commissioners who oversaw the state inquiry into mother and baby homes. Professor Mary Daly declined to be interviewed. Efforts to contact Justice Yvonne Murphy and Professor William Duncan were unsuccessful. They have not spoken publicly about their work, bar one controversial exception. Professor Mary Daly spoke about the commission at an online event organised by Oxford University in June 2021. During this talk, Professor Daly acknowledged that testimony from the Confidential Committee was not given the same weight as evidence gathered by the Investigation Committee. She also said the commission had to be, quote, ultra-careful in terms of what it published due to the looming threat of legal challenges from religious orders. That same month, Daly and the other commissioners turned down a request to appear before the Oireachtas Children's Committee. In a letter sent to the committee at the time, Justice Yvonne Murphy said that Daly's comments had been taken out of context. Murphy said it was not true that some women's testimonies were discarded. She also denied that any religious orders had threatened to seek judicial reviews. 
Murphy defended the inquiry's work, saying that a commission of investigation has to be independent. She said it does not follow a popular or political narrative or agenda and seeks to establish the truth as best it can, based on the facts it gathers. Murphy also noted that the value of the confidential committee report, quote, should not be underestimated. But she added that it cannot be taken as a definitive history of mother and baby homes, due to the fact only a small percentage of overall survivors gave testimony. Bar those comments from Murphy and Daly last year, little is known about how the commission carried out its work, and much remains unclear. What was the thinking behind its approach? And why haven't we found out more about how the inquiry operated? Crow says staff who worked for the commission need to speak out. It's, it's a failure both of imagination and analysis to come to the conclusions that they came to. They also came to the conclusion that there were no forced adoptions, which the, the evidence in the report itself contradicts, and that there was no, none or very little physical abuse, again contradicted by the, the evidence in the report. So these things defy description, really, in the sense that how do you come to those conclusions? Could you please explain how you actually reach these conclusions based on your own report? They haven't done so. The big problem is silence on the part of the commissioners and the staff of the commission, none of whom has come forward to answer absolutely legitimate questions about how these conclusions were reached and how this methodology operated during the six years that the commission was sitting. And nobody has opened their mouth. I think they were all made to sign non-disclosure agreements. I have to say, lads, there's a time when NDAs have to be disregarded. Somebody should be answering these questions. And if the commissioners won't do it, other people on the staff should. And they're not going to go to jail. Imagine being sent to jail for telling the truth about the Mother and Baby Home Commission. Won't happen. Um, someone should have the courage to stand up and tell us what exactly went on in there. What was the methodology? Who wrote what? How was the work apportioned out? You see, there's no methodology chapter in the uh, report, which again is report 101. Tell us your methodology. How are you going to proceed with this? How are you going to analyze the information? How are you going to use it? Nothing. Which in itself is a red flag that we're not being told at the very beginning how they intend to go with this. The monumental scale of the commission means it's unlikely this current government or a future government would be willing to revisit the report and it's important to remember that the document is now an official public record. But it's not the only research that documents people's experiences in mother and baby institutions. Six months after the final report was published, a group of legal experts wrote an alternative executive summary. They examined evidence gathered by the commission, as well as testimony from over 160 witnesses given to the Klan project. These experts came to very different findings than the Commission. They found, quote, substantial evidence of inhuman and degrading treatment of women and children in mother and baby institutions, involuntary detention, and coerced and illegal adoption amounting in many cases to forced adoption. Dr. Mavo Rourke, a co-director of CLAN, says there was anything but a lack of evidence. Overall, the CLAM project found on the basis of the witness testimony and other archival research that we did, that 
the Irish state in collaboration with church entities, including lay religious entities, of course, operated a system of incarceration and forced family separation. We found that adoption was one of the absolutely key areas of abuse. And time and time again, we drew attention to the fact that Unfortunately, the commission was not focusing on the practice of adoption per se, but instead on a selection of institutions. And we felt that the key abuse was forced family separation and that we were very concerned was not being acknowledged. In terms of human rights and constitutional law violations, we found evidence, clear evidence of enforced disappearance, which is one of the most serious human rights violations that exists, which is defined in international law as happening where a person is detained or abducted with the involvement or knowledge of the state, following which the state refuses to tell the family of their whereabouts. And we actually found that enforced disappearance could be seen to be happening still today in the sense that the state is still involved in preventing family members who were separated following incarceration or abduction from knowing each other's whereabouts. It's not known if the three commissioners agree or disagree with the Tlan report's findings. But we do know that Yvonne Murphy has flagged there is nuance to the commission's findings. One example, in relation to adoption, was raised in her letter to the Oireachtas Children's Committee Murphy said the Commission's report did not say there were no forced adoptions, but that the Commissioners didn't agree with the suggestion that all adoptions should be renamed forced adoptions. Murphy acknowledged that some mothers had no option other than adoption, but she noted that others did keep their children. Regardless, we're now left in a position where the official record says one thing, and both the testimony of survivors and the research of external experts says another thing. Little can be done to make it right, but one avenue for survivors is taking legal action. Mary Harney is one of eight women who did just that. Taking the state to court over the Commission's findings and how it operated. She and fellow survivor Philomena Lee, whose life story was turned into a film starring Judi Dench in 2013, were chosen to be the subjects of two test cases in the High Court. The women's legal teams argued that both of them were identifiable in the Commission's final report, and they should have been given the chance to read the sections related to them in advance of publication. This didn't happen and, as a result, the women said that inaccuracies about their testimony were included in the report. In December 2021, the state acknowledged that the women's rights were indeed breached when they were not allowed to correct the inaccuracies prior to publication. This was a significant victory for survivors. As part of the settlement reached between the women and the government, a statement acknowledging this breach of rights was published alongside the final report. It notes that some survivors do not accept elements of the report as, quote, a true and full reflection of the evidence they gave. 
Mary told me she wanted to give the commission the benefit of the doubt while it was carrying out its work. But, ultimately, she wasn't shocked that its findings contradicted the evidence given by her and others, or that the testimony given by religious orders was seemingly taken at face value, while survivors' evidence was, at times, viewed as untrustworthy or contaminated. And when I saw the report, I knew we were down the same old rabbit hole. Nothing had changed. As a matter of fact, the Ryan Commission at least acknowledged the systematic abuses. They acknowledged what went on. They didn't couch it in human rights either. But having been through the Ryan one and then this one, I'm not surprised they got it wrong. What I'm surprised at is, well, not surprised either, but angry and deeply, deeply insulted by, is that they took, once again took the words and the testimony of religious orders as being absolutely true. Ours was contaminated. It was stories. They referred to it as stories. They're not stories, they're lived experiences. Why did they consider that we were basically lying? You can't be telling the truth because your evidence is contaminated. How do you mean contaminated? We came up with the same story. Yeah, because we were there at the same time. We have the same history. People weren't incarcerated, they were free to come and go. Where did they get that from? How can they draw that conclusion? This is historical evidence. It's, it's fact. And it's, you know, court cases that were there. So you can then turn around and say, well, no, this didn't happen. No, people weren't abused. No, there was no discrimination against mixed-race children being adopted. Uh, excuse me? Where's your head? For many survivors, the Commission's report was the latest setback in a long line of disappointments. Many of them viewed taking part in the inquiry as a long overdue way for the truth to finally come out. So, when much of their testimony was labelled contaminated and unreliable, this was a huge blow. And for them to only find this out when reading the final report at the same time as everyone else, and at which point it was too late to change its contents, added insult to injury. Why was their testimony not handled with more care? And if there were questions over some of their evidence, could the Commission not have asked them to clarify certain points before it completed its work? Although Yvonne Murphy and the other Commissioners stand over their report, which Murphy says speaks for itself and must be read in its entirety. The women felt let down by the state all over again. Survivors like Mary now face two fights, correcting the official record of what happened to them and the ongoing struggle to get information about their early life. For Terry and Monica, the Commission's findings were deeply upsetting but not entirely unexpected. Their attention has now returned to their primary goal, 
finding their children. Next time on Redacted Lives. The first thing we done was hugged, and this hug went on for, it seemed like forever. And we found out that she never did go up the country. She never did have a brother. Her father wasn't a plumber. She lived an hour's drive, if not less, away from me. It was just that, wow, he's real. He's real. And that was the big thing. It was like, he's real. This is real. This is actually happening. Thanks for listening to episode four of Redacted Lives. If you pass through a mother and baby home or another institution and want to share your story, you can contact us in confidence by emailing redactedlives at thejournal.ie. Redacted Lives is created and presented by me, Orla Ryan, and produced by Nikki Ryan. Sinead O'Carroll is the executive producer. Dara Brophy and Christine Bohan were production supervisors. Taz Kelleher is our sound engineer and design is by Lorcan O'Reilly. With thanks to Laura Byrne, Susan Daly, Adriana Costa, Carl Kinsella and Jonathan McRae. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in these episodes, you can contact the Samaritans by calling 116-123. Subscribe to Redacted Lives and you can help us keep telling important stories like this by sharing the series with a friend or leaving us a review or rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow all the latest updates on thejournal.ie or via our Twitter page, at Redacted Lives. The next episode in the series will be available next Thursday. <laughs>